The Ulster Workers' Council Strike, 1974, Part 11, Victory in the Heat of the Bonefires. things came to your head. Monday 27th of May 1974, day 13 of the UWC strike was a key day. The threat of decisive action by the British Army had come. The SDLP ultimatum finally came through for them. According to Fisk, the Army went into action sharp at 5 o'clock on Monday morning. Truckloads of troops and Humber armoured vehicles hummed along the dual carriageway towards Sydenham, while packed Land Rovers crossed the main roads into the city to check any cars in the street. Outside the city hall, two ferret scout cars were placed strategically at the intersection of the largest shopping street, Royal Avenue, their turrets revolving and their browning machine guns pointing at every vehicle that passed. Two companies of men from the 1st Battalion Light Infantry were posted around the oil tanks in the Harbour Estate next to Sydenham, in the shadow of the great Harland and Wolf cranes whose aerial warning lights were still winking mischievously against the dawn. Jerry Fitt tried to go to bed in the early hours of the 27th of May. A few sleepless hours later he was wakened by the military activity outside, yet the radio said nothing. On the Antrim Road, only a few hundred yards from Fitt's home, successions of coils of barbed wire were being unrolled by marines around the Castleton filling station. In Derry, Hume was told by Fitt that the oil plan was now being put into action as he watched the army ferret vehicles driving past his front window. Reese in his memoir states, Jerry Fitt rang me very early today that the Antrim Road had been full of vehicles since 5am and that his people were buzzing as to what was going on. I told him that the oil installations had been occupied without any trouble, though I refrained from mentioning that the oil companies had not been very helpful in this any more than at any other time during the strike. In East Belfast, two Land Rovers turned up at the filling station where the watchman had already been warned by the UDA to expect visitors. The UWC had a rough idea of when and where the stations would be taken over. A British Army sergeant walked up to the petrol station manager with a corporal who had a coil of barbed wire over his shoulder. We're taking over, the senior NCO told him. You can go home. At Ulster Garages in Corporation Street, the proprietor turned up shortly after the Army takeover. As he left, he put up a handwritten sign to make it clear that he had no part in this. It said, under new management. The Belfast Telegraph headline would attribute this to a bit of wry humour on the part of the soldiers, denying the UWC supporters even this. But other commentators make clear that it was the petrol station manager who put the sign up, making it unambiguously clear that this was nothing to do with him. Merlin Rees broadcast at 10 to 7 in the morning, stating that the Army's operation was in fulfilment of the Prime Minister's undertaking on behalf of the government to maintain essential services, adding, 
it has become necessary in the face of continuing interference with the normal distribution arrangements, backed by the violence and the threat of violence. The army operation was now in full motion, as Reese announced to a stunned public. The province has reached a serious crisis in its history. Sectarian violence of the worst kind is a possibility. A province that has known over a thousand deaths in a few years could descend into further anarchy. Give peace a chance, he said, quoting John Lennon. Reese relates in his memoirs, making a call to the Northern Irish to pull back from the brink now. Let us all pull together for the good of Northern Ireland and break away from the theme of Irish history, violence. Give peace a chance. But then he reminisces priggishly. Such words were outside the vocabulary of the UWC and their friends. And for good reason. Lennon, you'll remember, vented his spleen three years before in an attempt to solve the Northern Irish problem by means of a three-minute jingle which seemed to advocate the destruction or at the very least the dispersion of the Ulster Protestant majority. Listen to the words. Three hours later in a radio interview, Reese said, With our history in the United Kingdom, we are understandably not keen to go into industrial disputes. At last, the government minister seemed to be acknowledging the fact, says Anderson, that no soldier had gone in to break a peaceful demonstration of popular will since the Peterloo massacre. The installations were being requisitioned by the Department of Commerce under John Hume, whose plan it was. But it was the army who rolled up at five o'clock in the morning. The civil servants would come three hours later waving their stationery and their forms. Alison Lennox, manager of the Belfast Oil Refinery, had received a long-awaited telephone call at ten past five that morning to say that the Department of Commerce was taking over his plant. As Don Anderson relates, it needed skilled technicians around the clock and Alison Lennox could not guarantee that they would remain at their post, so Lennox ordered a six-hour shutdown procedure. He was relieved that he managed it because there was also a panic button which set in train a crash shutdown. Spectacular because all the gas in the system is flamed off. If that occurred, restarting was a greater problem. There were in fact panic buttons all over the plant and this caused problems. Brian Faulkner in his memoirs informs us, Information was clearly leaked to the UWC who took measures to disrupt the operation by such methods as mixing the fuel tanks at the stations concerned. The information was obviously passed on by an official sympathetic to the strike. But this was only realised after the troops moved in at 5am on Monday and it became clear that the operation had led to a diminution rather than an increase in the availability of petrol. So did the UWC really sabotage the distribution of fuel as Faulkner asserts? To do such a thing looks like pure spite and has been a main ingredient of the UWC's detractors ever since. This was the opposite of what the UWC set out to achieve. Remember, they had kept the refinery open and 142 petrol stations to boot. Fisk asserts that there was a limited degree of sabotage, but in this he points the finger at UWC supporters in the Sydenham oil refinery itself rather than accusing the UWC directly. Whether this was done with their support is unknown or whether it was done with their cynical assent in reaction to the position they found themselves in, who knows. Fisk states, In the oil depot storage itself, the men responsible for loading the tankers with fuel decided to sabotage the operation. They drove one of the vehicles from Sydenham Terminal and filled it with thousands of gallons of paraffin. The UWC had been told, through at least two leaks, that the operation was about to be implemented. Indeed, since Friday, the papers had been full of speculation about the threat. Craig, Fisk states, has since maintained that he and the UWC knew of the forthcoming operation. But neither the army leadership nor the officials around Reese knew how precise the information they had was. The UDA got the names of 10 of the 21 petrol stations hours before the army turned up. They even approached the night watchman on one petrol station at East Belfast. 
and told him roughly when the, exactly the army would turn up. An investigation Reese refers to in his memoirs, given the concerns about leaks. Reese later states that he could not even trust his own phone lines in the face of this mass protest. Concludes that officials within John Hume's own Department of Commerce or the Department of Agriculture told the UWC by telephone of the plan and its timing. Hugh Petrie of the UWC would maintain that the information came from military sources, adding that the army were anxious to let the UWC and their strikers know what they intended to do, lest the paramilitary groups interpreted the military activities in Belfast in the early hours as a prelude to another mass arrest operation. The army were clearly aware of the commotion and threats of a shooting war in Rathcoole and did not want to ignite the Tinderwood tension. Fisk concludes that the UWC got their information from both army sources and civil service sources from very different motives. As Anderson relates, there was no opposition as they entered the refinery at Sydenham in Belfast, the oil storage installation on the Pennyburn Road in Londonderry and its 21 filling stations dotted around the province. Seven filling stations were in Belfast, two in Londonderry, one each in Larne, Ballymena, Portadown, Lisburn, Bangor, Oma, Enniskill and Newry, Armagh, Dungannon, Coleraine and Downpatrick. Soldiers, when they entered the refinery, thought that the tanker loading area of the refinery had been sabotaged. They could get nothing to work. However, this was not the case. The workers had cleared out in a hurry and had shut down the pumping system by pressing the emergency stop buttons. When this happened, they had tripped out the whole pump switching system back to the substation. As for the sabotage accusation, Don Anderson provides an additional reality as an answer. He relates in his book, The 14 Days of May, and I quote him fully, Army engineers eventually worked out what had happened, and by 3 o'clock that afternoon, the loading of tankers was in progress. Alison Lennox was not too happy with the way the soldiers handled the highly inflammable spirit. They spilt a lot of volatile fuels and did not always earth the vehicles to guard against the spark of volatile electricity. Another problem then soon became public. The soldiers were not always sure what product they were dealing with. An oil refinery, he goes on to say, produces various grades of oil from thick black oil for burning in fire stations to light distillates such as petrol and paraffin. Oil is labelled in seconds. Very heavy oil for burning is 6,500 seconds. A small factory boiler might use 220 second oil. And diesel oil used by road vehicles and central heating is 35 seconds. But the Belfast refinery was using another set of labels unrelated to seconds in the rating of their oil. So, when an engineer from the hospital rang up and asked for 35 second oil, the civil servant in the refinery looked up the list of products and saw one called F35 and sent it on its way. The F35 was thick black fuel, normally reserved for marine boilers. Luckily, the soldier on the delivery used his head and more importantly, his nose, says Anderson, and realised in time that whatever he had brought, it wasn't 35 second diesel oil. Other customers were not so lucky. Paraffin was delivered to petrol stations and ended up in some cars, he concludes. In several petrol stations, says Fisk, the army had the assist in serving fuel. The government, like the UWC, issued almost identical lists of essential petrol users, although they were operating less than half the number of garages, he goes on to say quite colourfully, Privates in the 1st Battalion, Royal Highland Fusiliers and an amalgamated regiment whose battle honours went back to the Peninsular Wars found themselves dispensing three-star petrol to doctors and bakers roundsmen. In Lattice Drive, Fisk states, The soldiers and civil servants diligently filled dozens of cars with fuel only to find that every vehicle broke down a few yards from the garage. 
The road outside was soon blocked by abandoned vehicles or cars in which the drivers vainly turned the ignition on the cho choking engines. The army, Fisk asserts, had been innocently distributing the contents of the UWC's paraffin tanker. In Ballymena, the strike-breaking exercise, he says, bordered on farce at the Seven Towers filling station on George Street. Local farmers, clearly not intimidated, blocked off both ends of the narrow road and one of them, in an almost unique form of sectarian intimidation, drove his mechanical muck spreader up to the civil servants at the pumps and threatened to spray them with liquid faeces unless they stopped work. If you look at the pictures from the time, it would seem that, given most of the army commandeered petrol stations were in Protestant areas, and this was a flaw in the plan, such as Ballymena, Ulster Protestants invented the concept of the flash mob, blocking off with huge crowds both exit and entry to the stations, regardless of the cords of barbed wire and the snipers on the roofs. In fact, by the Tuesday, when the Red Top Press and the broadsheets in Belfast were waking up to the reality that this was a popular movement with mass support, it was left to the Belfast newsletter, the traditional mouthpiece of Unionist Protestant opinion, to pick up on the Peterloo theme. Not since Peterloo in 1819, said the leader, when 600 people pressing for parliamentary reform at a peaceful and orderly demonstration near Manchester were cut down by the sabres of a cavalry regiment, has any British government persisted in a venture that would sweep aside the democratic right to protest? As Fisk states laconically in his footnotes, the Protestant press had a habit of throwing inappropriate parallels at the public, citing the fact that one of the organisers at Peterloo had requested that the demonstrators carry no sticks or weapons of any description. The UDA, he points out dryly, hardly fitted this category. And so the executive had made their move. And when the UWC did not blink or divide, a heavy realisation came upon all of them now that their last move had been made and they were powerless. Merlin Rees goes on to state that we realised that this restricted distribution would cause trouble, particularly as many of those who wanted action, including the CBI, were not aware of the limits of our capability. It would only be a short time before the power station started their final rundown and the problem of sewage would get steadily worse. The permanent secretaries asked to see Brand Faulkner and painted a sombre picture of the economic and social position. They were, I think, right to do this. I have never accepted the position of the SDLP politicians that the behaviour of the civil servants was somewhat traitorous. The job of civil servants is to present the facts as they see them and give advice. The job of the politician is then to make up his or her mind. I quote recent fool because to go back to Fisk's eyewitness account, the power sharing executive, after a few hours of encouragement, realised the disastrous effects which the army's operation had brought about. Faulkner, he tells us, uh, led a meeting with the permanent heads of the civil service at Stormont, and the officials reminded their chief executive of the appalling hardships that would be inflicted on the province if the power supplies abruptly stopped. Paddy Devlin, in his book, The Fall of the Executive, later asserted, says Fisk, that the permanent heads of the Northern Ireland Civil Service told Faulkner that they could conceive of a situation where they could no longer support the executive. Faulkner, who was honest insofar as repeating what he was told, disputes this, and Sir David Holden, the then head of the Northern Ireland Civil Service, refuted Devlin's assertion absolutely. But as Fisk relates, one minister said he could hear the civil servants clapping in their minds when the coalition collapsed. But he goes on to say that there is no evidence that any of the heads of the civil service were ever unfaithful. He goes on to cite an example of one of Merlin Reese's own advisers who in the middle of the strike turned up at Hawthornden Road and demanded that the UVF black leather jacketed guard let him in. As Fisk states, asked for his pass and the reason for entry, the official, by no means a man of strong build, 
Luke the UVF guard in the eye and said, I just want to tell Bill Craig what a shit he is. The official was approached by two more men and decided he had made his gesture. He left very quickly. Fisk assures us. And so here we are, witnessing an upper middle class man confronting one of the most ruthless terrorist organisations in Europe, being allowed to vent his anger, then being under orders to be peaceful, sent peaceably on his way. The UWC reacted. Their counter-strike in response came immediately, and its revenge was as swift as it was devastating. Bill Craig, Harry Murray, Hugh Petrie and Andy Terry and the other strike leaders who turned up at Hawthorndon Road early on Monday agreed that the time had come to call a total stoppage, to announce that within 24 hours all essential services would come to a halt. Just as they threatened throughout the strike, everything would die. Now was the time to close everything down. If the army were involving themselves in one civilian reserve that helped to run the country, they reasoned, then the British Army personnel in Northern Ireland could be left to run all of it in collusion with John Hume. Murray, Patterson and Barr drew up a list of the essential services that would now be discontinued. It included electricity, gas, water, sewage, telephones, fuel supplies, security guards, firemen, bakeries and food deliveries. It included everything. At Ballylumford Power Station, operational technical staff were the first to walk out in solidarity with the oil refinery workers, but not before making every effort to gradually close down the turbines and avoid irreparable damage with such skill that it later drew admiration internationally from their industry. Thus the electricity supply faced an imminent collapse and there was nothing anybody could do about it. Then directions went out to all the other essential workers to do likewise. As in Ballylumford, the generations in the main turbine hall were now running at 10% capacity. A load so light that the machines were in danger of tripping automatically whether the workers wanted to close them down or not. The heads of the Northern Ireland Electricity Service travelled on opposed through roadblocks and scratched their heads realising and accepting that the turbines could not be run at Ballylumford with the help of the strike breakers alone. And one and a half million in the province were now to be completely without any power. Then the gas workers also walked out in solidarity with the lockout of the oil workers at Sydenham. Even the few who remained indicated that they were not prepared to keep the gas supply at safe levels. The 160,000 families in Belfast, Bangor, Newton Arts, Hollywood, Lisburn, Carrick and Newton Abbey were to have no gas supply from that day either. Even those who still had some supply were actively warned through papers and the intermittent radios and loudspeakers from police vans to turn off their appliances because of the imminent risk of explosions. The gas workers agreed to wait until the warnings had gone out before their full walkout. Meat suppliers and butchers indicated that once the power went down, the cold stores would go, and off would go the minced meats, stewing steak, and stewed beef and sausages within a matter of hours. Without the electricity, the pumps would go, the water in rural areas would go, and warnings were issued to conserve it. And when the sewage pumps would go, the sewage would come up onto the streets of many districts, up to the knees with the first hard heavy rain. The Belfast Telegraph headline for the 27th of May summed the position up. Doomsday it announced bleakly as Ulster blacks out. This had been the UWC's trump card all along. Indeed they had threatened the very same thing on the third day of the strike but were held off by the adeptness of uh, Andy Terry. Neither flexed response plans were adopted again. In removing their supporters out of all of the province's essential services, they were only bringing forward what they intended to do when everything still maintained as it was in the third week of the strike, and they had every confidence in their tactic. 
Had they been arrested on the Saturday after Wilson's speech, this was the button any of the unarrested subordinate replacement leaders would have pressed. Sammy Smith, the UWC propaganda minister, told the journalists assembled at Hawthornden Road that the lid was off. Throughout the day, he fired off streams of badly typed press statements, such was the pace of events. Communique number two began, The Ulster Workers' Council were informed today that all workers at flour mills had thrown in their lot with the workers as a direct result of the army being forced to engage in efforts to break the constitutional stoppage. Communique number three ordered all security men of factories to withdraw their employment as of midnight. Security staff walked out of already cold, closed factories and offices, leaving them open to looting, which did not happen. Any looting that took place was contents of hijacked vans, gutted before being put in the barricades by an unscrupulous minority of the UDA. Communique 3 also stated that all facilities for sailing on the Belfast Adrosan ferry service were to cease immediately. Another statement, Fisk says, issued so hurriedly by Smith that the UWC title was almost illegible, announced that since the tanker drivers had been refused entry into Sydenham Oil Terminal by the British Army, that the aircraft refuelers at Aldergrove had walked out of the airport in sympathy, adding that all employees in every industry were to withdraw their labour within 24 hours. He could have just said that at the beginning, but this was psychological warfare at its most perfect. This was meant to be a protracted twisting of the executive. It was designed to panic Faulkner and his ministers into the extinction of their offices. The walkout at Aldergrove severely hampered the army because of its status as Belfast then only main airport through which supplies and reinforcements and equipment came in. The loss of the airport to the UWC recurs in Reese's memoirs as one of his greatest fears and now it had come to pass. These were all essential workers voluntarily walking out at the urging of the UWC, making it unambiguously clear that by now this rebellion had moved well beyond intimidation. Smelling victory for some days now, this rebellion had become an expression of national solidarity by Ulster Protestants of all classes and walks of life, now looking toward each other and turning their backs on the world. A good example lies in the flour and animal feed mills. Most of Belfast mills which provided the bakers with flour and the farmers with vital foodstuffs either did not turn up or walked out that day. All 150 workers walked out of John Thompson's. There was a mass walkout of all 360 workers in Andrews and Sons as well as RHM flour mills and William Marshall and Co. The interesting revelation in terms of general support for the strike came at AET Greens, where the Belfast Telegraph reported that all staff of all grades, including managers, turned up and assembled outside the mill, and without a picket in sight, just stood at the gates and refused to go in. A massive demonstration was assembling in Dromore to be addressed by leading Ulster politicians in support of the UWC, who stated, The Ulster Workers' Council appealed to all people to remain calm and avoid any incitement to violence. Grave diggers, the UWC said, asked for guidance and a grisly piece of theatre, attributed to the suggestion of Harry Murray, were advised, bury the dead today, but let the British Army bury the dead tomorrow. The UWC issued a starkest communique, telling no more than the truth. It read, flash bulletin news sheet number 16, to the loyalist people, all services have now been stopped, but do not despair. This is ultimately what we need to do to get the full effect of the strike to obtain the final issue of being allowed to hold democratic elections, to put representatives into Parliament who will look after the interests of the Loyalist people. The SDLP and Republicans have had it. Jerry Fitt cried his eyes out for the army to come in, but now he knows, the SDLP know, the Republicans know, Faulkner knows, and now so do you know, they have had it. They might as well give up and admit they have no mandate to speak for the majority of the people of Ulster. 
Do not cause any aggro, it concluded. Stand fast and be calm. We shall win very shortly. And always remember, no surrender. Please pass this sheet on when you have read it. Thank you. On the long approach to the statue of Carson, standing clawed hand outside the Stormont Parliament buildings, thousands of farmers protesting the army's takeover of supplies were now coming to deliver a final show of force in support of the UWC by driving their tractors and agricultural vehicles, estimated by the police to be 250 in number, onto the lawns of Stormont, blocking off in their tailbacks all of the arterial routes into South Belfast. Thus the final siege of the executive took form. The grounds of Stormont was now packed and choked by men who the executive fancied would have been their supporters, all waving placards and singing and shouting, a great many proudly waving the red, white and gold Ulster banner. And added to them were thousands upon thousands of Belfast people who, scenting victory, had thronged from Belfast into here the heads of the UWC, all by now assembled beneath the Roman pillars at the front of Stormont Castle, swarming the grounds and the lawns, lapping up to the front and the foot of the founding father of the Northern Irish state. The newsletter, a pro-Ulster Protestant Northern Irish paper, set out the stark facts in its editorial. Support by the Faulkner Group for the use of troops against a countrywide protest movement has left it without a single fragment of credibility. As it has disowned Ulster, so has Ulster disowned it irrevocably. Mr Wilson, it went on, and Merlin Rees, at the behest of the Republican SDLP, and clearly in conflict with the security forces, have chosen to draw battle lines. Be it a day, a week, or a month, the dismissal of the executive must now be seen to offer the only means of ending the strike. For the last two weeks, the British newspapers had been condemning and dismissing the Ulster Rebellion. Now their editors were beginning to see the new reality. Under siege and absolutely outmanoeuvred, Brown Faulkner returned to the cabinet room at 1.20pm and informed his colleagues he had tendered his resignation and Rees, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, had accepted it. The game was up. But it was not Jerry Fitt, who as the UWC broadsheets taunted, who was crying. He was near to tears, but it was Oliver Napier, the head of the Alliance Party, who was reported to have cried openly. Hands were shaking. And defiant to the last, the SDLP refused to resign. In Dublin there was confusion and consternation. They had relied on the unfounded, miscalculating optimism of the SDLP and could not for the life of them understand why the oil plan had not served its purpose and why it had weakened rather than strengthened the Northern Irish government. And the news of the collapse was leaked to the press. The Daily Telegraph was the first to break ranks. Was Mr Wilson, their leader, wrongly advised about the genuine strength of the protest against Sunningdale? Did his Northern Ireland Secretary, Mr Merlin Rees, place too much emphasis on intimidation and distort the view of the overwhelming majority of people? Was he told the so-called Ulster Workers' Council was not elected and therefore not representative? Then there was the hesitation over whether to use the troops. The next few days will be crucial for Ulster and for Britain. If Mr Wilson is to meet... These problems with firmness and decision, he must be sure of his advisers. Faulkner himself stood on the wooden steps at the side entrance of Stormont and delivered his resignation and news of the collapse of the power-sharing executive to scores of journalists. The common sentiment that coalesced in the UWC strike was perfectly summed up when before Faulkner emerged, one of the armed security officers detailed as Faulkner's personal protection unit strolled up to international journalists 
and to their and Fisk's amazement, casually inquired of them, clearly referring to Faulkner, has that wee bastard been put out yet? Brian Faulkner, Northern Ireland's final Prime Minister, and latterly the Chief Executive of the Power Sharing Executive, emerged under the light of a new world. In the pictures and footage, Robert Fisk, for whose account of these momentous events I am primarily indebted, is standing near him, jotting his words down in shorthand. Faulkner at last admitted that the strike had indeed had massive support, but it was difficult to hear him over the roars of army trucks that filed past, with soldiers shouting from them to journalists, asking why they were being redeployed. Groups of Ulster Protestants mulled around the front to gloat at Faulkner's unionist colleagues, some jeering. It is often said that when democracies fall, they fall not amidst lamentations, but with rounds of applause and cheering. But this was no democracy. It was a foisted construct which the last two weeks of mass rebellion demonstrated had no support amongst the majority in the country. It was fitting, therefore, that this regime was seen out with jeering. Faulkner addressed the people whose frustration he had once voiced, but who they had long since reviled for a somersault. We believe that Northern Ireland can only be maintained as part of the United Kingdom on the basis of cooperation between Protestants and Roman Catholics, he said, missing the point. It is, however, apparent to us, from the extent of support for the present stoppage, that the degree of consent needed to sustain the executive does not at present exist. Nor, as Ulsterman, are we prepared to see our country undergo for any political reason the catastrophe that now confronts it. That is why I recommended this morning, on behalf of myself and my colleagues, that some sort of dialogue between government and those confronting it should take place. But the Secretary of State was unable to accept this recommendation. We have therefore offered our resignation to the Secretary of State and have advised him to explore the possibilities of constructing a new administration on a basis which will command general public confidence. The SDLP leadership refusing to accept that the ground of Ulster had been moved seismically beneath them stubbornly refused to resign. But now through Merlin Reese they accepted the inevitable instead of through the Assembly. Its members on the executive were firmly opposed to the unionist Faulknerite idea that some sort of mediation or negotiation should take place with quote, those responsible for the present serious economic disruption of Northern Ireland. But this was refused because of the fundamental issues involved and then they repeated their mantra that partnership between different sections of our community and between North and South is the best way forward for the people of this island. It was left to the Reverend Dean Paisley to point out that John Hume had spoken of the value of partnership between the majority and the minority. But, he said, it is a funny sort of partnership when the leader of the SDLP in the British House of Commons calls for the British Army to come in and break this strike and confront those people. The Taoiseach of the Republic of Ireland applauded the courage and dedication of those involved in the executive, but complained that the great experiment of cooperation had been racked by deliberate misrepresentation of its purpose on the one hand and the continuance of violence on the other. In advocating that it was vitally important that all should remain calm, he stated, There is just no point at this stage in entering into our recriminations as to what might have happened if things had been handled differently. This, of course, was a dig at the British government for not, ironically, using their troops on what they perceived as fellow Irishmen, this time Protestants, to use their own perverted logic in 1974. Safeguarding lives, he said, was now the object. The British Conservative Party called it nothing less than a tragedy. A bare hour after Lord Chancellor Lord Hailsham had publicly gone on air to describe UWC members as guilty of high treason, calling their actions a conspiracy against the state, 
Almost the entire leadership of the Ulster Workers' Council were parading openly in front of the huge crowds of supporters. Many paper tigers had shown their lack of teeth that week and looked the more foolish for it, and Lord Hailsham was no exception. It is no good, Lord Hailsham recriminated, being or calling yourself a loyalist and not obeying the law. And this is a conspiracy against the state, there's no doubt about it. In previous times, judges would have had no difficulty in describing it as high treason, because it's an attempt to overthrow the authority of the Queen in Parliament. He was right, of course, but so what? Glenn Barr, Bill Craig, the Reverend Dean Paisley, Harry Murray, Hugh Petrie, and the paramilitary leaders Ken Gibson, Andy Terry, Bob Morneau, Tommy Little, and Colonel Basil Brush were all there, and historic photos of that day display their air of supremacy, of a victory hard fought and wrought from what seemed at the outset insurmountable odds. Ulster Protestants with a unique culture and identity, shed of their useless landed aristocratic leadership of former years, had, for the first time, announced their national consciousness on the world stage, and that is what mattered. The fact that the UVF and UDA would erupt into warfare with each other within a year was far off. The next day, workers would flock back to work satisfied they had won. They had destroyed one government and smashed the Northern Ireland policy of two others. But this was only an aspect of their actual success. The real success of the strike and the strikers was that they had announced that existence and that the world stood up and took notice. Policies would align to reflect this new reality. In the South, the Irish government would rein back its aspirations of unity and treat the Protestant nation of Ulster with a healthy respect. The British would learn the lesson and in future tailor their policy to treat them as a body. This manifested itself in many ways, including the progressive Ulsterisation of security, where, the British reasoned, the Ulster Protestant people were more ready to absorb the losses and their young men now pushed more and more to the forefront in the battle against Republican terrorism. But for now, all that mattered is that they had won. The British government were to try other initiatives in the years to follow, from the Convention of 1975 to the Anglo-Irish Agreement in 1984. But 14 days before, remember, all of this had looked so different. Many historians today reflect that Faulkner was pushed too far. The SDLP were adept negotiators and wrested too many concessions, backed fully as they were by the direct support and remorseless manoeuvring of the Dublin government. It was missed on no one that John Hume was not interested in power sharing. He and his colleagues were committed to Irish unification and the constant trips to Dublin gave the impression that the Dublin government had a clear input in the governance of the executive. When you read Faulkner's account of the pressure cooker atmosphere at the negotiations, he was clearly bullied and pressurised by Heath in the concessions that should never have been made by a functioning state, including a dual policy of concession as the policing, partly farmed out by giving a dimension of input to a foreign state. Indeed, the Council of Ireland provided the nucleus of what could have evolved into an all-Ireland government and was not the necessary nonsense Faulkner had convinced himself it was. The Dublin government provided no quid pro quo to help the executive in Faulkner. It did nothing to alter its territorial claim over Northern Ireland. Its joint declaration regarding sovereignty was too often retracted so as to be worthless. Although they protested correctly that there was no chance politically that any other action would be acceptable to the Irish electorate. But the Ulster Protestants, that was the point. A deep-dyed green Irish nationalist population south of the border wanted unification pure and simple, 
and did not recognise the right of Northern Ireland to have a future as a state. The Irish Supreme Court didn't help with its ruling in the Boland case, which undermined Cosgrave's declaration. The Southern lawyers did not help when the report on the Legal Commission changed nothing on the security front and still left aghast Northern Irish eyes watching terrorists freed for what were regarded as political crimes. All of them served their own agendas, playing to their own electorates, the Irish parties in their talking up the Irish dimension in conflict with their opposition, and the SDLP and their assurances to their party. And all of this left Ulster Protestants with a conviction that, as the poster said at the time, Dublin is only a sunning deal away. The Irish side gave too little and took too much. And Ulster Protestants watched all these machinations, all of these wide-ranging concessions, and saw no benefit from them, as they were still continually being bombed and shot back into the Stone Age, and watched the integrity of their institutions railroaded by hostile entities. When finally provided with a voice and a rallying point, they swarmed out in their hundreds of thousands in defiance, remembering their forefathers' battle cry of no surrender. And the biggest lesson for all of those who tried to remould and redefine Ulster by pressuring their politicians and bending them to their purposes was that Ulster Protestant culture is quite unique for two reasons. Firstly, it is by its nature anti-intellectual. It's impossible to know what the mass of them are thinking until they're out in the streets. And also, it is led uniquely from the bottom up. In their culture and in their history, Ulster Protestants had a word to describe every individual in every generation who acted against their identity and their interests. They called him the worst word in the Ulster political lexicon, Alundi. The consent of the Ulster people, once the politicians were bent to agendas that ill-served them, simply slipped back through hostile hands, recoiled, reassembled and struck back devastatingly. And now they had changed the game. After years of being internationally reviled, vilified, talked out of existence like an unborn fetus at the mercy of world opinion, whilst being bombed and shot back into the Stone Age, after five years of an existential threat to their existence, they had much to celebrate. For in conceding nothing and in weathering every deprivation, they had measured their own solidarity and resolve, and in so doing, gained a sense of themselves, and knowing this, drew the line that they would allow nobody to cross in the future. The Taoiseach of the Republic of Ireland, Liam Cosgrave, laid the blame for the failure of the executive and the success of the UWC on the IRA and the continued bombing campaign. Both he and his counterpart Jack Lynch of Fianna Foyle were wise enough, as Fisk says, to see in the phenomenon of the UWC a growing sense of Ulster nationalism. Rees would give the same interpretation in the House of Commons and was immediately taken to task by Ted Heath. Indeed, he gave a press conference as early as the 31st of May 1974 and the Belfast Telegraph simply ran the banner, Ulster nationalism. There is not the slightest doubt, Rees said, of the overwhelming support from all sections of the Protestant community as the strike developed. I only observe, he went on to say, that since the Unionist Party was broken up in March 1972, there is a force, and we have seen it in recent weeks, and it has come together in the very strong feelings that emerged in the workers' strike, admitting now that the support had gone right through the community. The Irish government realised that in future they would need to deal with the Ulster Protestant nation as well as the British government in any future negotiations. Rees still talked of Ulster nationalism as a major force which the British government would have to consider when rebuilding its long-term Irish policy. The Belfast headline, 
Ulster nationalism, it's a major force, Reese said this unequivocally. The cost of paralysing the province for two weeks in terms of exports lost, benefits and compensation was huge. It provoked the British government to reassess the level of its subsidies to Ulster. Many firms pulled out, but to Ulster Protestants this was a mere minor consideration. As with the Battle of the Boyne and the Siege of Londonderry, they viewed their astounding success not as a victory, but more in terms of a deliverance. As for Harold Wilson, the Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, he gave some thought to withdrawing from Ulster and seriously discussed it as a possibility. Socialist feathers were badly ruffled. It is hard to read the views of people who were liberal on most issues, who believed in disarmament, reproachment, who were in effect or being pacifists, fire their salvos of hate repeatedly at Ulster Protestants, almost as a reflex, in a way unthinkable today. A group of Labour MPs, among them Kevin McNamara, surprise, surprise, made a concerted effort to force a withdrawal of the British Army from Ulster. The day before, Labour MP Rennie Short called on the British government to answer any future action by the UWC by sending in tanks and a proper show of force. Among their number, Tam Dial claimed their drive had the support of rather less than half of the Labour backbenchers in the ruling government. Another Labour MP, Neil Kinnock, in later years Wilson's successor, stated that the British trade union movement had had enough of Ulster Protestants and were now saying, leave them to stew in their own juice. The armed bands of Ulster, he went on, have no legitimate trade union identity or motive. Their fight is an attempt to freeze history in maintaining the pathetic inch of superiority they have over Catholic workers. British trade unionists, he concluded, have viewed the division and destruction in Ulster with amazement and disbelief. The mood is now changing to one of angry impatience. Three Liberal Party MPs voiced the same view. It was no more than a manifestation of hatred of Ulster Protestantism, but it had been there long before the strike. But all of this was no more than recriminations and sour grapes of a pro-Irish lobby who had been defeated. At least they were pro-something in Ireland. Those who loved Ireland loved the Irish in 1974 and in the main detested Ulster Protestants. Those with no time for Ireland hated them all and lumped them all dismissively together. A more common sentiment in England at the time was a comment of Irish ascendancy Protestant peer Lord Aaron in his provocative column in the London Evening News. His comments drew complaints from MPs and a referral to the Attorney General and 24-hour police protection. He stated, referring to the Protestants in the strike, but also to all of those in Ulster and in the Republic of Ireland. There is nothing to choose between the North and the South. I hate the Irish. I have always hated the Irish. I always will. There is not a drop of Irish blood in my veins. I loathe and detest the miserable bastards. May the Irish, all of them, rot in hell. One of his roles had been conservative whip in the House of Lords. And the pressure to withdraw from Ulster altogether grew in the wake of the strike. On the 31st of May, the IRA demanded the same, but in later communiques implied that they were coming to agree that then the Ulster Protestants had a shared identity. But it did not stop the mutual killings and bombing campaigns that quickly followed the end of the strike. Harold Wilson was out of ideas and Merlin Rees, against all expectations, remained Secretary of State for Northern Ireland in the ensuing reshuffle. Wilson wrung his hands and decided that it was for both communities in Northern Ireland to sort out their own arrangements for government and Rees set about speaking to all six parties. This resulted in the 1975 Convention and another Treble UC Ulster Protestant landslide and Harold Wilson. Wilson decided that Ulster should take on more of the security duties and bear the brunt of the deaths, the woundings and the mutilations. 
He even produced the Green Paper, reminding Northern Ireland of its £300 million burden to the British taxpayer. The Guardian newspaper was helpfully quick to point out that the annual cost was actually near to £468 million. The same document pointed out the Protestants that their middle classes had supported the strike. Harold Wilson must have by then realised his speech had got it all so wrong. And it's, this stands in history as a startling admission for a man who previously would only recriminate at checkers about a minority of neo-fascist thugs. As Fisk says, it took only a few hours for loyalist Protestant nationalist Catholic politicians to realise that the government was in effect telling them that Ulster's departure from the United Kingdom would not be too greatly regretted. But then again, a Rye observer could respond that this thinking was exactly what the Council of Ireland and consequently the Ulster Workers' Council strike had been all about. The agenda had changed. Two different worldviews had been at absolute cross-purposes and at the crux of it were two different perspectives. On the one hand, the Irish and British governments who had viewed the Protestants of Ulster within the context of a minority in the island of Ireland. And on the other hand, the perspective that saw the Catholic minority of Ulster within the context of power sharing within the Northern Irish state. When an Ulster Protestant says Northern Ireland in his own accent, it is a name for his country and he or she doesn't see the word Ireland in it. They had made the point on the international stage that they simply did not see themselves as Irish. The more clement-minded had no issues with Irishness, that was their thing. But Ulster Protestants simply weren't Irish. If Irishness was defined by Catholic in religion, Gaelic in identity and the Irish language in games such as hurley, curling and Gaelic football as it was in 1974, then these things were both alien and incomprehensible to them. Their culture had a unique identity and they had faced the threat once more of being swallowed by a country that did not recognise them, did not understand them, did not care for them and had absolutely no time for them. And nor were they Ulster nationalists. They simply had a culture unique to themselves. And in May 1974, the world simply prized off the lid and witnessed it almost as if for the first time. It was a culture that owed more to Lowland Scots, but it evolved its own unique character in the 350-odd years since they had settled in Northern Ireland. The 1970s were a decade of ideology and socialism and a very selective view of nationalism, which only seemed to apply to smaller countries. It turned out that they were a people apart with quite a strong contribution to world history. Their influence in the United States probably defined what an American was. And there is here they had acted out of defiance when threatened. And then as now, their history had been on the verge of being appropriated by English imperialism and Irish arrogance. Call the phenomenon of the UWC strike Ulster nationalism is to misread the dynamic that existed in 1974 deserted of their traditional leaders, who in truth had done nothing to improve their position in the 50 years or so they ruled the province, reviled by international opinion, they had had no choice but to rely on each other. There were less than a million of them, and yet they had announced their presence and their views to the world spectacularly. Notwithstanding their triumphalism, which did really nothing for them, they were no longer viewed in the same light as white Rhodesians or French Algerian colonists, but as one of the two sides in a native incomprehensible conflict. And the international world set up and watched with intrigue. Idi Amin Dada, president of Uganda, self-styled conqueror of the British Empire, offered to chair a conference between both sides in Kampala. By now, a reviled mass murderer, the British Foreign Office concluded his wish to help 
Northern Ireland was sincere and recommended a polite, measured response. Journalists from every continent sought interviews with the Ulster Workers' Council leaders in order to work out how they did it. Two of those were known KGB operatives. Even the Soviet Union was interested. And Fisk relates the story of a Spanish journalist who, after interviewing Harry Murray, dropped his mask and asked if he would be prepared to assist in a power strike across northern Spain against Franco's fascist government. Murray declined, but so much for the neo-fascist accusation. On the 30th of May, 1974, It's All Go Again, was the Belfast Telegraph headline. On its front page, it showed Harry Murray, who it described as the voice of the UWC, blowing the dust off his oil painting kit as he and his wife Sarah sat in Ward Park in Bangor. And amid the headlines, the great return to work is on. The readership were informed that most workers in heavy industry would be back at work by the Monday. The turbines at Ballylumford were expertly powered up again and the other workers in hospitality and service sectors went straight back to work. And soon the workers in Sydney Oil Refinery would do the same, their wholehearted support having been key to the Ulster Protestant success. And the streets were once again bustling with buses, cars, vans, taxis, the traffic increasing as the tankers delivered. Whilst Jerry Fitt and Faulkner paid tributes to each other, the UWC in their communique had, according to the Belfast Telegraph, something to say about non-jury trials which they advocated should be scrapped. Hostile to the last, but tucked under there is a revealing piece of news which reveals high effect of the last days of the strike had been. The Telegraph reports that 10 tonnes of bread had now been flown to Speak Airport to feed the service personnels and families of the British Army. The Ulster Workers' Council truly had overcompensated in their plans, but enough of that. For now there was a victory, a deliverance to savour. The Belfast Telegraph reports that loyalists throughout Ulster celebrated last night at the news that the executive had collapsed. Scenes of the greatest jubilation were in Belfast Shankill Road, where women and children danced in the streets waving Ulster flags. The biggest rally, they reported, was in Rathcool, where up to 5,000 people turned up to hear the Reverend Ian Paisley and the UDA official Sammy Smith. There was a victory march along Rathcool and bonfires blazed along the route. A similar parade was planned for Clock Fern and another rally in Glengormley. And police, the Belfast Telegraph reported, said there were no reports of any incidents during the celebrations. And Fisk relates how they celebrated on the day of victory. In the Shankle, he says, in Sandy Row, on the Newton Ards Road, in Rathcool and Duncairn, the orange bands paraded the streets and behind them marched hundreds of thousands of loyalists, singing and shouting, some waving copies of the evening paper which headlined the collapse of the executive. Bill Craig found that his neighbours, no supporters of the strike, invited him into their garden for a victory party. Brian Garrett of the Northern Ireland Labour Party, who had tried to act as a go-between less than a fortnight previously, went back to Hawthornden Road to implore the Ulster Workers' Council to order a return to work. There he found the power workers and politicians standing in candlelight in the back room singing, Oh God, our help in ages past. Faulkner and Fitt were burnt in effigy across Belfast. And that evening, spectators on the North Down coast were witness to a remarkable sight. The smoke from thousands of bonfires around the shores of Belfast Lock, funnelling black and straight into the night sky. The city, much of it still in darkness because of the power cuts, was sharply illuminated by the flames of fire in the streets where the loyalists were dancing in the heat to the tune of their bands. 
The Protestants had mutinied and won. They had rebelled and beaten the British, not in armed conflict, but with perhaps the most unique industrial strike in post-war history. A collection of workers, he says, gangland leaders and politicians had fashioned a new weapon which had shown up the weakness not only of their own constructed government but of every sophisticated society. And as Glenn Barr and Andy Terry, the head of the UDA, drove through the celebrations, they viewed them as premature because the call of fresh elections had not been met. But the hated Council of Ireland concept had died with the executive and that was enough. A sense of themselves and a cultural inability to give in to bullying was the greatest legacy of the Ulster Workers' Council. An inconvenient nation in 1974 had demonstrated to the world that they were a people to be reckoned with. And they had done it five years into a violent conflict without a bullet being fired or a bomb being planted. Simply put, the soul of their nation, the union leaders, nobody's really, had declared their revolt and in the end coalesced all the sectors of their nation around them. From the criminals, to the paramilitary criminals, to the paramilitaries, to the shopkeepers, the workers, the middle classes, including the civil service. All Ulster Protestants, and in the end utilised the power, the devastating effect. How many nations created their own founding myths for much, much less? And so the story of their world irrevocably changed from about 14 days before is told. It is in essence a blueprint for a successful rebellion. Although the leaders said it could never be used again, Paisley would try it three years later, but without the unique support of the men in the key industries it would be a fiasco. But Paisley was ever the showman, a trotting Judas goat with an eye for the main chance. And here the story ends. But to conclude, as for the main actors, their subsequent behaviour indicates the sort of men they were. General Frank King became Knight Grand Cross of the Order of the Bath. Brian Faulkner would be ennobled Baron Faulkner of Downpatrick. He would be thrown from his horse 24 days later, chasing with his staghounds, becoming for a long while the shortest life peer in history. Jerry Fitt would one day become Baron Fitt of Bells Hill. Stan Orme, also a lifelong Republican, would become Baron Orme of Salford. Merlin Rees, who was later ennobled to Baron Merlin Rees of Morley and South Leeds, would go to great lengths to change his name to Merlin Merlin Rees so that he could be called Lord Merlin Rees. And on the same day that Paisley, lukewarm to the rebellion of first, and who, during the strike, held least stock among the rest of the UWC, was basking in his victory in front of a crowd of 5,000 in Rathcool, in the glare of the cameras, eclipsing the unsurpassed efforts of better men, always the crafty self-publicist, he too would later be ennobled to Baron Banside of North Antrim, his wife Eileen ennobled to Baroness Paisley of St George's. The UWC members disappeared into anonymity, with the rest of the hundreds of thousands of other Ulster Protestant workers who, with their vision accomplished, simply went back to work. <laughs>